audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in the Gospel of Luke. For more audio or information about our church, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, based on last year's projections, it is guesstimated that tomorrow, 68 to 70 million Americans are going to dress up for Halloween. And I'm sure if we were to go around the room this morning and ask opinions about Halloween, some of you would probably be all over the place. Some would love it and some would not love it. And, and thankfully, we're not going to do that this morning. But, but um, I'm not going to debate Halloween, but, but, but I, I'm venturing to guess that, that somebody is going to ring your doorbell tomorrow, and they're going to be dressed up, wearing something, and they're going to ring your bell. And what are they going to say? Trick or treat. And they're going to be expecting that you have candy. And if, if you don't have candy, that, that's like my favorite is when you see like kids ring the doorbell and then some, actually not my favorite, it's like making me sound like a horrible person. But when kids ring the doorbell and people like don't have candy for them because they expect it and they, they want candy and, and they go and ring, ring the doorbell. My girls, man, they are so excited. We have a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old and they are ready to, to rock and roll and to trick or treat tomorrow. And if you came to our house, you would see a beluga whale trainer who has her costume, who actually has been wearing her costume the last four days. Um, <laughs> And won't take it off. Uh, seriously, it's a battle. Um, but then our, our three-year-old is going to be Nemo, and our four-year-old is going to be a Disney princess. And man, they are ready to go. And if you come out tomorrow, you'll probably see me running around with a camera trying to capture all the cuteness. And it is, it's just going to be a lot of fun, and we're excited about it. But, but what's interesting about Halloween is you see people all over the map as far as costumes. And, and, and I don't mind it. Sometimes I, I kind of enjoy seeing people dressed up. But what freaks me out are the masks. And there are people that wear these masks, and, and then they hide, and they jump out. And I swear, man, if somebody does that to my girls, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a problem. But they wear these, they wear these masks, and then they, they're like, boo, and, and it freaks you out because you, you like turn around expecting you know, to see just a normal person, and they're wearing something that, that is, you know, a lot of times pretty freaky. And, and what a mask is, it, it, by dictionary definition, uh, of a mask is, is something that is worn over one's face to conceal what is underneath, or a manner or expression that hides one's true character or feelings, and a mask is a pretense. And while this morning, none of us are running around with physical masks on, thank, thank goodness, and we're not, we're not running around, you know, jumping out in front of people, I would venture to guess that all of us would admit that we are guilty at one point or another, or maybe even this morning, about trying to portray something outwardly that's different than what's going on in our hearts. I think that all of us try to put on our game face and try to appear one way when in actuality there's something going on. Maybe your marriage is a mess, but you're here this morning trying to pretend like, hey, look, we're, we're, we're holding hands and everything's great. Or maybe there's, there's tragedy that struck and, and you're really struggling, but you gotta pretend that you have it all together because you gotta look spiritual and you gotta make sure you don't let people know what's going on. And what we're gonna see in our text this morning is that Jesus encounters a group of people that were very, very concerned with how they were viewed. And, and what ended up happening, they were so concerned with what was going on on the outside and externally that they actually ignored what was happening in their hearts. And they tried to appear one way, and they tried to appear super spiritual and being close to God when in actuality their hearts were far from God. And Jesus has some very strong things to say to them. We're going to be at the end of Luke chapter 5 and push into chapter 6 this morning. I invite you to turn there. But before we read that this morning, 
just want to set a little bit of the background, and this is what's happening. Jesus was journeying throughout Israel, and uh, he was going and he was calling people to follow him. Justin talked about that last week where he, he started calling his disciples, and, and Jesus was building his, if you will, core team of people that were going to follow him and journey with him. And Jesus began to teach throughout the land of Israel, and he was performing healings and doing some amazing things. And people started to become or be drawn to Jesus. And what's so interesting, and and as I read the Bible, I I always have to remind myself, this is a completely different world that they're living in than what we're accustomed to today, because this is long before any sort of media. They had no television coverage. They had no printing press where they could just, you know, something would happen, and then they would record it and mass produce it and send it out. They certainly didn't have social media. It wasn't as if when Jesus would perform a healing or Jesus would do something that they, they had Twitter where they could go on and be like, dude, this Jesus is awesome, hashtag, pretty sure he's the Messiah, hashtag, check him out, hashtag, he's gonna be appearing at the temple, hashtag, they didn't have that. And so the way that people would find out about Jesus was word of mouth, and it began to spread like wildfire. And there were groups of people that were attracted to Jesus and, and, and started to kind of maybe follow him, and others that were intrigued by him that said, hey, we got to come and find out what this dude is all about. And one of the groups that we're going to encounter today that came to check out Jesus was a group called the Pharisees. Now, you may have heard their name before, but what the Pharisees were, they were one of three Jewish sects. So the other two were the Essenes and the Sadducees. But the Pharisees were kind of these religious, uh, spiritual giants. Their name actually meant separated ones. And, and they prided themselves in strict conformity to the law of Moses. There was a law of Moses that they were required to follow, and there were 613 commands in the law of Moses. And, and what's so interesting is they, they knew their theology. They understood this. They knew these commands like the backs of their hands. And they could run circles around us with knowledge. I mean, these guys knew it. And they knew exactly what, it, you know, what was going on and what, what the law said. But what had happened is they had also had a law called the Mishnah. And what the Mishnah was was this oral tradition. It wasn't the law of Moses as, as, as required in God's word, but the Mishnah was this law that was from the rabbis that was passed down to oral traditions. And the purpose of the Mishnah was to protect them and safeguard them from violating the commands of Moses. So to give you an illustration, if, if this morning, um, if, my, if, if, if the law of Moses said, do not touch a microphone this morning, uh, or do not, do not touch a microphone on the Sabbath, right? Do not touch a microphone on the Sabbath. The Mishnah may say, do not come within five yards of a microphone. Or do not put your hand up uh, four feet above your waist because then you won't be able to touch a microphone. So they had all of these safeguards. If the law of Moses said, hey, I can be close to the microphone, I can talk in the microphone, I can be around the microphone, um, as long as you don't touch it. But they had all of these other laws that, that, that said, hey, do, you know, don't even touch it, don't even come near it. They tried to safeguard them. And they became so wrapped up in, in what, uh, this legalism and these traditions and all of these rules. And Jesus says, hey, they completely miss the point. And these men had become so caught up in these rules and regulations that what ended up happening is they become self-righteous and and they became pious and they became arrogant and they became hypocrites. 
and they totally missed the heart of what this law was all about, and they completely missed God. And Jesus has some pretty strong things to say about, or to them, and we're going to be reading in, in Luke chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast, fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with him? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told the parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for they, says, for they say the old is good. So Jesus is journeying through with his disciples and the Pharisees come and they, they ask him about a spiritual discipline and that spiritual discipline was fasting. They asked him about the spiritual discipline of fasting. And what fasting was, was going without food for, for an intense time of prayer or seeking God. Going without food or something else, but usually food, for the purpose of intense prayer and seeking God. And, and fasting in the scriptures was an important spiritual discipline, and there were three primary reasons people would fast. The first was to break from their normal routine. And it was a way where they would, would kind of get away and, and withdraw from their normal routine. The second was that they would spend time separating themselves to God. And, and removing themselves from food is a way that they could depend on God and separate to him. And the third reason that people would fast was for a time of crisis. When something you know, really hit the fan and they were concerned about and they were really, really nervous about, that they, they would have this corporate fast for this crisis. I mean, Hey, it, it would be right now for us as a church maybe to fast with what's happening in our country and, and to pray that, that God would, would provide in a mighty way. And, and there was a time when they would fast corporately in a time of crisis. We see this in 2 Chronicles 20 where King Jehoshaphat in the land of Judah knows that his enemies are coming and is afraid that they're gonna be destroyed because he knows that they're powerful and they're coming in on him. And so he calls for a nationwide fast and asks the people to seek God. And so they do it. They wholeheartedly seek the Lord and they fast together and call upon God and depend on him. And God throws their enemies into a tizzy and they end up fighting against each other. And there was so much spoil and plunder because they killed each other that, that the land of Judah was able to have uh, it took them three days to collect all the spoil. So in a time of crisis, they called to God and he answered them. Jesus himself fasted, we see in Matthew chapter four. And in Matthew chapter six, Jesus tells his disciples, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces when they fast to be seen by others. But I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may seem by, not by, by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And Jesus tells his followers, not if you fast, this is what I want you to do, but when you fast. Fasting is a great thing that Jesus wanted his followers to do. But... 
The purpose of fasting wasn't to be noticed by others or to be recognized by them for how spiritual you were, but rather to break away and to be with God and to truly depend on him. To depend on God rather than to depend on food. And fasting was a way of connecting with God and yearning for his presence in one's life. And so these Pharisees, they come up to Jesus and they start asking him about fasting and say, hey, what's going on, man? You know, John's disciples, they're fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees, our, our disciples, our followers, they're fasting. But Jesus, what's going on? Your disciples aren't fasting, and we know we're supposed to fast. So what's, what's happening, and why aren't you doing this? And the very reason that they, or the very point is that they even asked Jesus um, at this question shows that they thought of fasting not as a private exercise done to depend on God, but rather as a public exercise to display one's spirituality. And they were about their self-promotion and their appearance. And they were more concerned with how they appeared than rather truly seeking God and depending upon him. And I love the way that Jesus answers them. If you and to look in your Bibles uh, in, in verse 34. Jesus said to them, uh, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus answers them by speaking uh, a parable. And a parable was a short story that Jesus would tell that had a deeper meaning. And, and he tells us why he spoke in parables. He says, I speak in, in parables uh, so, so that because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. Jesus speaks in parables to expose their lack of understanding. And he, he starts by giving them an illustration of their day. He says, hey, the, the wedding, wedding guests of the bridegroom, they don't fast when they're with the bridegroom at the wedding feast. And it was customary in those days. I mean, imagine this for a second because we're so used to going to a wedding and then having a reception and then going home. But for them, a wedding celebration was a week long. And the whole point of it was to celebrate and to delight in the marriage and to delight in the bridegroom. And these guests would come and they would just celebrate and they would rejoice in the bridegroom. But these guests also had all of these religious responsibilities and, and rituals and traditions that they were required to practice. But those were null during the wedding feast. So they, um, their, their priority during the wedding feast was to rejoice in the bridegroom, to be with them. And Jesus is saying, listen, my disciples are with me. They're spending time with me. They're celebrating me. They're, they're delighting in me. They're with me. So they're not fasting. A time's gonna come when they're gonna be taken from me and they're gonna fast because they're gonna long for me and be dependent upon me. But right now they're with me just as these wedding guests delight in the bridegroom. And I love that picture because for us, what is this all about? It's about celebrating God, delighting in him, knowing him, being with him. And Jesus says, my disciples are doing that. And Jesus said that there would come a day when fasting was appropriate, but, but at the present time, it was not that day. And he wanted them to delight in him. And then Jesus launches from there to start talking about clothes and old clothes and new clothes and going together in patches and says, you can't fix an old garment by putting a new garment on it. Now, do you ever read something and then you just kind of have an, a light bulb moment where you're like, okay, I get that. That's a parable. Some of these parables, I'm not gonna lie, like you read it and then you gotta turn to a commentary and be like, what is he talking about? But this one, man, I got it because if you know me, you probably know that I'm a pretty active guy. 
and I have a lot of energy. I, I like to run around, and, but I mean, imagine me as a kid, like third grade, right? I mean, I was, yeah, you, some of you, Justin, get that smirk off your face. But I was, I was, I mean, I was, I was an excited kid, and man, I lived life to the fullest. And I would go out and play football with my buddies, and man, you know, be in my clothes and just, you know, we'd be playing tackle football, or I'd go out for recess. And man, I was a recess and gym class all star. Like I was all into the dodgeball and sliding around. And so what would happen is I would get these, these have these jeans on, and they would tear. And so my mom wasn't about to go jean shopping every time I came with a hole in them. And so she got the patch. And there were two ways you could put on the patch. You could sew them on and you, or you could iron them on. And, and I had both, right? So it was pretty, pretty cool. But what would end up happening is you'd have these jeans that were old and then you put on the new patch. And even though it kind of matched, when you'd, and you may not even be able to tell initially, but what would happen is when you would wear the old one, it would tear away from the new one. And it didn't work, and, and it didn't look cool. But you know what? I was in third grade, and who cares if a third grader looks cool? We don't, they're not going to take out a second mortgage to buy me jeans. Um, but, but the whole point is that you cannot fix what is old by just simply put something new on it. You can't fix something old that is torn or broken by just putting a new patch on it. It's awkward, and it doesn't work. And then Jesus uses the same illustration, to make the same point, by saying, listen, you can't take an old wineskin and put new wine in it. And a wineskin would hold wine, and as the wine would mature and it would age, so the wineskin would acclimate to that wine. And if you would take that old wine out and put in new wine, the wineskin would burst, and it wasn't able to hold it because of the pressure of the new wine. And both of these parables illustrate this point, that you cannot mix old religious ritualistic tradition with faith in Jesus. This going through the motions of ritualism and tradition is not compatible with faith in Jesus. Jesus was not looking to add something to what they were doing, but he said, I came with something new. And for Jesus, following God was not about going through the motions. Following God was not about going through the motions. And I want you to hear me today because we gotta be very careful. Fasting was a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. It was a God-given thing for them to be able to do, to show dependence upon God and to long for him. And it's something that we should do today. And I've been convicted myself because this is, I'll be honest, this is not a spiritual discipline that I practice. And it's convicting for me. To, to be someone who, who fasts and, and uses the tool of fasting as a way of longing for God and depending upon him. But what had happened is that they turned these practices into something rigid and sterile. And it became this exercise and this mechanical way of doing things that Jesus didn't have use for. And Jesus became so sad and so angry and said, listen, all you guys are doing all of this stuff and it's all for naught because you're completely missing the point. They thought that their practices and what they were doing and going through the motions earned their right standing before God and that somehow made them into these spiritual giants. And the tragedy is that Jesus recognized their hearts were far from God and Jesus says no. But what about for us? Because I think that 
this is something that applies for us today, that, that we can go through the motions spiritually in a mechanical way, that our practice can become so routine and so methodical that it ends up uh, becoming sterile and it leaves God out. And we become so consumed with what we're doing rather than what's behind what we're doing and rather who's behind what we're doing. And I got to ask the question, if Jesus walked in this morning to Stone Oak Bible Church and he was able to come in here, would he have something similar to say to us? That listen, what you guys are doing, you're totally missing it. You're totally missing the point. Is this become about what we do and about our practices or has it become a longing for God and a desire to really get to know him for who he is? Let me ask you personally this morning, why, why are you here? And I hope you hear my heart in this. I'm just trying to make us think this morning. Why are you here? What was it that caused you to wake up this morning to come to church? Is it because it's a Sunday morning and that's what we do? And man, we're good Christians and this is what we do as God's people. And this is part of, of our week and our rhythm and what it means for us to be followers of God and good people is that we go to church on a Sunday morning. Or are we here because we have this longing for God and this desperation for him and this expectation that we're here to gather together as God's people to meet with him and to connect with him corporately? Because there, it is great to be able to gather together as God's people to worship him corporately. Scripture talks a lot about that, and we place a high emphasis on gatherings at Stone Oak Bible Church. But if we're just gathering because this is something that what we do rather than, hey, we're here as God's expectant people longing to meet with him out of desperation for him, is that why we're here? Because we really want to meet with God and we're expecting that he's going to show up? Because if our Christian practice does not cause us to have our hearts focus on God and align with him, then what we do has no value. And not only that, what we do becomes offensive and disgusting to Jesus. If, if what we do in our Christian practice does not cause our hearts to focus on God and align with him, then what we do has no value and we should shut it down. Because Jesus says he's called us to something so much greater than just going through the motions and so I wanted to just ask a couple of questions and maybe give us some tools to, to ask, how, how do we evaluate whether or not we're going through the motions spiritually? And what does that actually look like? And here are a few signs that we may be going through the motions. Well, if we gather on, on Sunday and we're gathering as God's people and we're excited to meet with him and we're longing for him and we're dependent upon him, then I would think it would mean that we would be longing for God and desiring him and dependent upon him throughout the week. But if we're lacking a private devotional life and a private prayer life, it may be a sign that what we're doing is just going through the motions. You know, another sign that's going through the motions is that we have mechanical habits in the way that we approach God. I mean, how many times do we sit down at a table and we just say, oh, wait, 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 don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. We gotta pray, we gotta pray. Dear God, thanks for this food, amen. How often are we saying, God, you know, you are the, and, and don't get me wrong, I think it's important to pray before meals. But are we understanding that we are really truly thanking God who provides this for us? 
and that we're looking to him to, to sustain us, not only with the food that he's given us, but also sustain us in life? Or is our prayer just something mechanical that we do because we gotta pray before our meals? You know, a sign you may be going through the motions is if you are lacking contentment and that you're always wanting more and that you're not satisfied because God wants us to delight in him and to be satisfied in him and to long for him. But if we're constantly wanting other things and we're not content, it might be a sign we're going through the motions. Another sign we may be going through the motions is if we're lacking peace in our lives and that we're so restless rather than experiencing this shalom or this peace with God. What about us today and how are we evaluating ourselves and do we kind of fall in line and would Jesus admonish me today and admonish you today in the similar way that he did the Pharisees? And you know what? I think he would. I think there would be things that he would say that, you know what? Why are you doing what you're doing? Because you're missing the point and you're totally missing it and he's called us to something greater. And the point here is never look at Christian practice as simply going through the motions of doing things. Never ignore the heart connection between ourselves and God because Jesus is concerned about what's going on in our hearts. And in Jeremiah 17, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees. For Jesus, fasting was about God, not about man. And these men had spun it around the other way and they made it about themselves. And following God is not about going through the motions, but rather following God is about having relationship with him. Jesus' disciples were to delight in him, to, were to rejoice in him, were to be with him, were to celebrate him. And I love that imagery of the wedding feast, that, that, they, that nothing else was a priority rather than just being with Jesus and delighting in him in relationship. And that's what God wants for us as his people, to have this relationship with him. And the spiritual disciplines were incredible gifts that God had given them as a way of recalibrating themselves and aligning themselves to God and, and a way of deepening their relationship to him. And fasting was a way to withdraw from something that has our attention and to focus on God and to cause us to depend upon him because he is greater. Is this us today? That we're people that truly want to have this relationship with God and knowing that he cares more about what's going on in our hearts than rather what we're doing externally or the way that we're portrayed externally. That we're truly pursuing the heart of God, that we're longing for him, that we are a people who are delighting in him and cherishing him. John Piper, well-known pastor and author, says this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And this is it, that we look to God for satisfaction and fulfillment. That we long for him and that we want to experience this relationship with him, not the praise of man or not caught up in this web of tradition, but that we love God in a way that's real, that's authentic and that's vibrant and that comes out of our hearts. And what we're gonna see in a minute is that this relationship with God that we're called into and that he longs for, he made possible by sending Jesus. And so Jesus continues on throughout uh, on his journey with these people and he continues his interactions with the Pharisees. And as we do this, I think you're going to pick up on some of the exact same themes that we just talked about. I'm going to read, start reading in uh, chapter six, verse one. On a Sabbath, 
While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and took some and ate of the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so we just saw about the spiritual discipline of fasting, and now we see the spiritual discipline of Sabbath. And we just finished our series on Genesis where we talked about how on the seventh day God rested and had a Sabbath day. And how the Sabbath is something that we're commanded to do in, in the Old Testament, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And back in December, actually the Sunday after Christmas, Justin gave a, a message about the Sabbath and about the importance of observing the Sabbath. And, and how that we as believers, this is a wonderful tool because the Sabbath was a time when people would rest and connect with God deeply they would remember their redemption and they would focus on the promises of God and, on deli and delight in him. And what we said as a church was that for us today, this is no longer something we do that we're required under the law because Jesus fulfilled the law, but as a spiritual rhythm, the Sabbath is a wonderful thing for us to practice. And matter of fact, it would be unbelievable if all of us practiced the Sabbath where we had time in our lives where we built to just rest in the presence of God and I think that that would, would revitalize our lives, but also our relationship with God and revitalize our church. And so here, Jesus is walking with his disciples in the Sabbath, and as they're walking through, they're plucking some of the grain and they're eating it. And they rub some of the heads of the grain in their hands and gleaning by hand or taking this grain by hand was permitted under the law of Moses. But eating of the grain was not the problem with the Pharisees. They were upset that it was all of this happened on the Sabbath. And according to their laws, the Mishnah, not the law of Moses, plucking the grain would have been reaping. Rubbing it in their hands would have been considered threshing. Blowing on the, on the wheat would have been considered winnowing. And eating the, the wheat would have been storing it. This is how crazy this, this got, right? And so Jesus responds to them, and, and I love how he responds to, to, to these men. He, he didn't say, you know what, I'm not breaking the law of Moses, only your, your dumb traditions. He didn't say that. But what Jesus does is he, he gets to the heart of the matter, and I love the subtle jab that he takes at the, at the Pharisees. He says, but don't you remember what's written in God's word about what David did? And he recounts a, a time in the life of David where um, Saul, God rejected Saul as the king of Israel and he appointed David to be king. And so Saul, if you remember, wanted to kill David and came after him and David fled from, from Saul and he starts running for his life. And David and his men were in such haste that they were running away that they became hungry to the point of they were exhausted and they needed something to eat to sustain them. And they were desperate for food. And so they go to uh, the temple and, and um, they, they, the, the priest there was this guy by the name of Ahimelech. And they ask him for bread, but there was no common bread that was available. The only bread that was available was the bread of the presence, which was reserved for the priests. But Ahimelech went to God and he sought, sought God and asked for approval. And God gave him approval and said, yes, you can give some of the bread to David. And the point of this 
whole thing was that, that human need took precedence over the rituals and customs. That they'd been so tied to their rules and regulations that they've gone way, way overboard in their legalism. And that their legalism had become so overboard that they totally neglected the needs of human beings and were going to let somebody die because they had to follow their, their rule. And their traditions had gone so overboard. And this is, this is one of the things that I saw that I was reading. And this, this actually cracks me up. At this time, uh, at the time that, that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, many rabbis filled Judaism with all of these rituals related to the Sabbath. And ancient rabbis taught that on the Sabbath, one was forbidden to tie a knot. You couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. Except a woman could tie a knot in a girdle. So if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well, one could not tie a rope to the bucket, but a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket and then to the rope. I'm not sure how this quite works. And matter of fact, I don't know that I want to know how this quite works out. But the whole point is that these rules had just gone absolutely crazy and overboard. And they become, became so bound to this legalism. And, and this legalism still continues today among some Orthodox Jews. And a true story, actually, in, in the early 1990s, in Israel, um, there was a fire in an apartment on the Sabbath. And they freaked out and they ran to the rabbi to ask if they could make a phone call to the fire department to report the fire because in their laws they couldn't do that because it was considered breaking an electrical current, which was a form of work. And so they hunted down the rabbi and in the 30 minutes it took to get his answer yes, the apartment had burned down and spread to two other apartments and those burned down. And the whole point of this is people got so tied to these rules and these ritualistics that they totally missed the point. And while those two examples are super extreme, I think that there's a lot of truth for us today. There's, there's many Christians, people who would identify as Christians, many churchgoers, millions of churchgoers today that are subconsciously living just like the Pharisees, believing that if we do these certain things or live in this certain way, that somehow, some way, it's gonna allow us to be in this right standing before God, that, that our behavior earns this spirituality. And subconsciously, we think that our holiness or our sanctification pro process is tied to what we do. All of us are guilty of doing this. That, that if we serve in a certain way, that somehow that's gonna elevate me. Or that if I go to church, it's somehow gonna earn my right standing before God. Or that if I make sure that I you know, go feed the homeless or if I take care of these children and, and that it's gonna earn my right standing before God. And that our behavior produces this right standing before God and before others. And I think that if we're honest and evaluate our lives, sometimes we fall prey into that thinking that what we do can position us in this right standing before God. And don't get me wrong, all of those things are wonderful things, but the reason we do them is not because they earn this right standing before God. And to truly understand this legalism, we need to understand the point of the Mosaic law. And the purpose of the law ultimately was to teach man that righteousness could not be obtained by human effort. There was no way 
that somebody could uphold perfectly the 613 commands of the law of Moses, let alone the 1,500 commands of the Shema, there was, or of the, um, the Mishnah. There was no way that they could do this and that God is perfect and he's holy and he's set apart and that there is nothing that we can do to earn this righteousness that only he possesses. And so the law showed us that we could not obtain this righteousness by our human effort. We can't do it. And they had to have a sacrificial system so that when they violated the law, they would make a sacrifice to, to, to forgive them, uh, to ask for forgiveness for what they had done because they could not be righteous on their own. And, and I love what Paul says in Galatians 3. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was our schoolmaster. The law taught us to bring us to Jesus that we might be justified by faith. The law was put in place so that we could know that righteousness and holiness cannot be obtained by human effort and by what we do. It cannot be obtained by human effort and by what we do. And the law might allow us to come to the end of ourselves and our efforts and clearly see our desperate need for a savior. But for these religious leaders, they became so focused on the rules, the regulations, and the traditions that it actually did the opposite, and it caused them to become self-righteous, and they completely missed the heart of what the law was for, and they failed to recognize their need. You know, and at the risk of being a little redundant, but what is so tragic and terrible and, and, and even scary about this is the things that they were doing were good things. It was good to fast. It was a wonderful thing to fast, something that we should do. Observing the Sabbath was wonderful. It's a good thing to do to rest in the presence of God and to devote yourself to him. But, but they totally missed it. And, and they did these things as a means of trying to earn their righteousness and their right standing before God and a means to try to promote themselves spiritually so that others would recognize it, that they totally missed the point of what it was all about and they completely missed God. But then I, in closing today, what's so, I love this verse in verse five of chapter six. Jesus says something to them that I, man, I wish I could have had a picture of what these guys look like when Jesus said this. He said, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. I, I bet you that their jaws just hit the floor when Jesus said that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And here, Jesus is making an incredibly bold claim of authority. Jesus is saying that, that he has the prerogative not only to rule over their man-made laws, but over the Sabbath itself that was designed for worshiping God. That there was an inescapable claim of deity that Jesus was making. Jesus is saying, hey, I know what I'm talking about. I have authority. The Son of Man, which is me, is Lord over the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for me. It's meant for me. And Jesus addresses the law in different conversations with people and says, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to, to, to get rid of it, but I came to fulfill the law. Jesus came as Lord of the Sabbath to allow us to enter into this right relationship with God and to make us righteous. Jesus came, so he says that 
that they may have life and that they may have it to the fullest. And he came to allow us to be in right relationship with God. And Jesus himself invites us as Lord of the Sabbath, God himself into that relationship. For Jesus, following God wasn't about going through these religious rituals or by playing by the rules of man or by going through the motions or routines, but rather for Jesus, it was all about relationship with God and about having that connection of our heart in relationship with God. And Jesus came to make that possible. And Jesus teaches us, that, and, and Paul says it in his letters, and it runs throughout the New Testament, that, that we as God's people are no longer under the law, but now we're under grace through Jesus. And then it doesn't become about what we do, but rather becomes about what has been done for us so that we don't draw attention to anything about ourselves or to our behavior, but rather we draw attention back to God, which is actually the irony of it all is the reason that these spiritual disciplines were put in place. Jesus invites us into this relationship with God and he makes that possible by his life, by his death and by his resurrection. And he says, listen, I'm not interested in you just going through these, emotion, these motions. I'm not interested in you just gathering together and singing some songs and listening to a dude speak and, and going home. And I'm not interested in you just gathering once a week and, and doing these things in a mechanical way, but I care about what's happening in your hearts. And those are all good things, but, our, but the motivation behind them is, is to long for God and dependence upon him and pursue him and to have this relationship with God. And so in closing today, making this practical for us, what's the application in all of this and talking to the Pharisees about fasting and about the Sabbath and, and all of this, what is the application and I think making this prescriptive so that there's something that we do, the first thing is I think that we, we're called to examine ourselves, to pray, to truly look at why we do what we do. Are we here for ourselves? Is what we do in our private life about us and about ourselves to draw attention to ourselves? Or is it about God and what he's done for us? So examine ourselves. And the second thing for all of us is to humble ourselves. Scripture tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That we as believers are, are not called to be people who are prideful or who, who become so self-righteous and make it about us and what we do, but rather that we humble ourselves in the presence of God. And I, I heard this quote that several years ago that impacted me. And somebody asked a pastor one time, how, how do I deal with my pride and how do I stay humble? And he said, if you wanna stay humble, live next to the cross. And what he meant by that was if, if we wanna keep ourselves from becoming so self-righteous and, and, and pious and religious and making this all about ourselves and our pride, remember what Jesus has done for us and never let that leave us. Allow us to be in the presence of God and allow that to motivate us to live lives pleasing to him and allow the grace to produce in us these awesome things so that we gather together as joyful, expectant people and, and allow God's grace to motivate us to, to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received and to allow the spirit to motivate us and move us to all of these wonderful things. But to never allow our, our need for our savior 
to fall away from what's going on in our minds. And may that connect our, our hearts with the Lord. You know, I, I think for us today at Stone Oak Bible Church, you know, what do we do in light of this? And it's our prayer that we experience God together in relationship with him. And it's not about just gathering here and it's not about just, hey man, what's up? How was your week? Okay, great. But that it's about pursuing God together, going to God for who he is, knowing him, longing for him, expecting him and journeying through life with Jesus Christ together. And it's our prayer that we wouldn't be mechanical and sterile and going through the motions, but rather we would be people who have been impacted by the grace of God, the new that Jesus brought us. We'd be impacted by the grace of God and under this covenant of grace and motivated by this grace. That we'd be people of great faith in God that we seek of him expectantly. You know, I, in closing today with this quote, I, I uh, was on Facebook yesterday and I'm hesitant to go on Facebook sometimes, especially now with all the negativity that, that people are, you know, going on about. It's just kind of depressing. And, and I, one of my friends had this quote um, that, that I really appreciated about the life of Jesus. It says, we never read that Jesus marveled at art or architecture. Jesus never marveled at human ingenuity or invention. He didn't marvel at the piety of the Jewish people or the military dominance of the Roman Empire. But Jesus did marvel at faith. When it was present in an unexpected place and where it was absent where it should have been. And that's what we see in this text today is that Jesus marveled at what they were doing. They were lacking faith in their relationship with God. And I, I, uh, I pray that we are people who long for him, that we desire him, that we yearn for him, and that we challenge each other to, to, to evaluate why we do what we do and that we would embrace Jesus who makes it possible for us to be in relationship with God. Let me pray. Father, I, I thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us in Christ. Father, I thank you that you want to have a relationship with us who are sinners, who, who cannot become righteous on our own. And there's nothing that we can do. And Lord, I thank you that you are a God who is incredibly gracious that you sent your son to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And Lord, today I, I pray for myself and I pray for our church here today, the words of David in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Father, I pray that this is true of us at Stone Oak Bible Church. For your glory, Jesus. Amen.